Welcome to the WA Property Q&A, the podcast where I explore the ins and outs of buying property in Western Australia. I'm your host, Peter Fletcher, and each week I interview local property experts to help you to develop a deep understanding of the nuances of buying property in WA. From market trends to legal considerations, no topic is off limits. But before we dive in, a friendly reminder, while we provide valuable information, it's important to note that nothing discussed in this podcast should be construed as personal investment advice. Always remember to seek the appropriate professional advice for your specific circumstances. Now, let's get started and unlock the secrets to successful property buying in WA. So, welcome to the WA Property Q&A podcast. I'm your host, Peter Fletcher, and today we're speaking with Jason Cotton from Select Property Inspections about what's included in a standard pre-purchase structural inspection, and we'll be talking a bunch of other stuff. Welcome, Jason, again. Hi, Peter. Thanks for having me. You're becoming a regular. (laughs) Only when you won't have me. Uh, Like you got all offended last week when I said you, I had somebody else coming along. It was almost like only when you, you said see, it, only when you said it was Ryan Trippy. Are you seeing someone else? I was like Ryan over me. Right. God, <laughs> oh, it's good to have you here, Jace. Okay, so what we want to do is is unpack what's included in a structural inspection, and if we get onto other stuff, that's fantastic. Sure. But the important thing is here is that from a real estate agent's point of view. They see stuff in, in structural inspection reports that annoy them all the time. And, you know, they, they go, why is it in here? And to give us some context, we had a, a mutual client who, uh, uh, well, yeah, a mutual client and uh, the real estate agent contacted us and said, uh, or contacted you and uh, kind of grilled you about uh, why you included some of these things in your inspection. That's right, yeah. And and I don't think any of it was listed as structural. Yes. But I think there was a little misinterpretation there because of the colour coding that we use for various types of defects and just to notate whether they're a serious defect regarding anything other than structural. Mm. We can still flag those items to for people to be aware and for attention. Mm. Yeah. Okay, so... When somebody asks you, when, when a, an order comes through for, for a, uh, a structural inspection, you, you go out and you do your inspection, you're doing it in accordance with the Australian standard. Correct. Yeah, yeah. that's right. Yep. So we operate completely under the banner of the standard, which is also reflected and noted in the annexure, which we were put forward mm-hmm. that the building inspection will be undertaken to. Mm-hmm. So that uh, the guidelines in that standard act as a minimum. So, we, you know, if we, we shouldn't be really shredding things out of that standard and, and ignoring. Mm. Um, it, it's the minimum. So we try and base everything that we do in the inspection around that. Mm. And that's where you've, you, you put in things such as safety defects? Yeah, correct. So we, we list them as safety hazards. So not necessarily a defect. The, the Australian standard notes, notes as a safety hazard and defines a safety hazard. So We'll put it in as a safety hazard, but there's an overlap there with major defect. Mm-hmm. So major defect also incorporates um, deterioration that can possibly pour, possibly cause harm or uh, infers that you know, it's a danger to to people within the home. So, mm-hmm. so that yeah, they overlap a little bit. So 
my tendency is to note it first as a safety hazard and then just underwrite that in uh, in the note as a safety, as a major defect as well. Mm-hmm. Give us an understanding of the sort of things that you would mark as a, as a safety hazard that yeah. wouldn't be a, a structural defect. Sure. So in the course of the inspection, some things that come up regularly would be unenclosed electrical joints. So within the roof space, uh, you'd, you'd note that there are terminal ends of wiring wrapped together with some electrical tape that are, are sticking up in a bunch. Uh, some of them are often all hanging out, pulled apart in little plugs, um, screwed into plugs. And, and we've evolved. You know, We understand that many people have been electrocuted within roof spaces for, because they've not turned power off and they've climbed through. So the premise that we work from is that we're protecting the stupidest person in that house. So who is going to climb in that roof space to, I don't know, put a, a rat, rat bait in the back corner above the bathroom? And there's a classic example. So back in the 80s, they might have put heat lamps and not put enclosed, not, not put junction boxes in there. So you've got additional new wiring and everything's tied in and there's wires sticking out everywhere. Mm-hmm. So we're really working back from, you know, who's going to, will someone eventually drag their knee across that electrical joint? And disrupt it and, and get in contact with electrical wires. Mm. So that's a that's unenclosed electrical like unenclosed um, electrical joints. We would note as a safety hazard, mm-hmm. and also just flag that as a major defect. So you have a responsibility to your client, despite that it's been referred to you by a real estate agent or, in our case, a settlement agent. You have a, a responsibility to your client to identify those those defects, flag them so that they know about them once they take ownership of the property. That's correct. Yeah. And it also indemnifies us. I mean, if we're the last ones in the roof space and, and we have seen this, and then the next person is the owner who's just taken hold of the property and they've just climbed straight up into the roof space to have a look for themselves. And the nearest thing that they put their hand onto to grab a joist to push themselves up is a bunch of electrical wires that are uncapped. Then that's a problem. It, they, I mean, I, I will lose sleep at night if someone rings me up and says, you've left that out of the report. Why was that? Um, it's, it's a clear safety hazard. Mm. Mm. And that's just one example, but that's a hidden one because not everyone climbs in roofs. But it, it's also there to protect or sort of forewarn. You know, it gives the, um, the, the new homeowner a bit of an idea of what's happening. And if they have, you know, their Uncle Bob get up there who's, you know, a bit handy with fixing something, then he's protected as well. The owner can then say, look, you know, just be careful. We're going to turn the power off because there's open electrical joints or, mm. un- 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 yeah, no junction boxes. What are the other sort of safety hazards that you might stumble upon as, you, as you're going? Um, so some that I've just seen recently, uh, and, and we don't put these items into reports as a retrospective, you must, and this has to comply, you know, the shall and must and mm. those sorts of, that sort of wording, which implies that things are, you know, there's a legal basis for, or an authoritative basis for saying you have to do this. So balustrades come up pretty regularly, like the heights of balustrades, mm-hmm. the openings in balustrades, the types of materials, um, the weathering and deterioration around balustrades, uh, bedroom windows, um, lower than, you know, 1.7, uh, or, or lower than one meter. Uh, again, not um, having fixed closed or, or fixed, o- the window's not fixed to a certain opening. Mm-hmm. Um, so those sorts of things come up. And again, we don't uh, pretend to be an authority and say you have to do this. It's 
it's a retrospective item that needs to be fixed. But the awareness thing is there and it does it does get discussed that building inspectors in different forms have an obligation. And even where those uh, rules apply within bedrooms, you can walk straight into a bathroom and there's a bath and you can climb up to the edge of the bath and only 300 mil higher than that is the edge of the sill. And you can open the window all the way open and drop out two meters onto the ground. So we have to have a broader look at the property and look at all things in, in, in a safety context mm, mm. for the benefit of the buyer. Yeah. Yeah. Well, for the benefit of, of the buyer and I would argue all the stakeholders in the transaction, because uh, if you were to just walk past these items and not mention them and somebody caused, you know, had an, a resulting injury, there would be a, there would be a problem. Yeah, absolutely. And there are, there are some examples which you can draw on that are so close to home that you, everyone knows someone that's had a, a child sneak under a, under a gate to go and grab something out of the pool, a pool toy or something like that. We may not all know it, but we know of stories. Sure. And, um, and again, safety around pool fences and gates and windows into pool barriers and things like that also come up. Again, uh, we, we don't become an authority in that area, but, but it does constitute saying that this is a safety hazard. That, that's a, a great segue into another question is, so we often hear real estate agents complaining about that the inspector has written in the report, um, we recommend employing XYZ expert to come out and assess this further. And the real estate agents say, well, if the building inspector knew their job, they would be able to, to report on that and they would be able to be an authority on that. My reading of the Australian standard is that not only is that the right thing to do on the part of the inspector, it's expected that they recognise that they have lanes that they should be staying in. The inspector has lanes they should be staying in. Is it fair to say? Yeah, absolutely. And the electrical ones, that's an example. We can't write in the report that open electrical joint there is going to cause an electrocution. We, we can't say that. We have to say that open electrical joint is a potential safety hazard and it should be looked at by a competent person to rectify. Yes. So we can't go down the path of you know, talking over a qualified person who would be the electrical contractor. Uh, and in fact, we can't even say you need to have an electrical contractor fix this. It's, it's a competent person. Uh, that, that's the advice that I've had from inspectors from energy safety mm-hmm. um, and also from electrical inspectors, that we have to be very careful about how we veer out of our lanes and, and imply things are going to kill someone or cause, uh, you actually uh, state what the problem is and how it will affect someone. But we just flag it. It's a safety hazard. It needs to be looked at. And that's what you mentioned. Why wouldn't a building inspector just say that? Like, well, they're in... Some areas you can, but the legislated, the areas where there's legislation and there's um, you know, laws regarding how things are done, we, we steer a little bit clear of that. Yeah. And it, it's funny because, you know, one of the, the um, clauses on the, the, the reverse major structural defect annexure, it says that the work has to be rectified by a, someone qualified to do that work. 
Now we often um, we often get uh, problems with um, roof strapping. Um, what what do you call them? Tie down straps, tie down mechanical fixings, yeah. uh, all of that type of stuff. Yes, yes. So we we often get problems with that. Now carpenters from roof carpenters, there's no qualification for that, from what I understand. Like there's no roof carpenters uh, registration board. There's no, despite that, like that can cause problems. They're usually employed by a builder who then goes and checks their work. Yeah, but they're working to pretty strict building standards and building mm. codes. And there are, there are constant bulletins that come out to registered builders and people who are in, in that space to understand if there's been updates and changes and various things to you know, existing standards. Or, Chippy, or practices, but, but Chippy specifically, from what I understand, and I'm I'm happy for you to correct me or anyone else to correct me. From what I understand, Chippies, carp, roof carpenters, there is no qualification. There's no, sorry, registration board for. Yeah, but the which, registration, which, which then which then begs the question, who is qualified to fix those things up? Well, they would be qualified because they've gone through trades and they've been recognized as being qualified within their trade. But you're, I think where you're sort of veering across to is, are straps legislated uh, by law? Whereas we're, what we're looking at is there are building codes and practices which tradesmen have to adhere to because that's, that's what, what that's the industry they're working in. Mm -hmm. And if they don't, they get found out. That's where building surveyors then come in and then inspect the work or engineers inspect the work or people look at it retrospectively and say, Show me the building drawings. Where are the details for those tie-down straps? Why aren't they there? And then it, what it does is it, it, it gets disruptive. This can, those, these sorts of things can be disruptive with, in the industry itself in a good way. Mm -hmm. And tie-down straps have been, have been that. The, you know, the, the notion that um, all areas of building reframing requires tie-down straps is not quite right. But builders and their method now and the industry standard um, has shown that they just put strapping over everything. So the bird now timbers strapped, uh, all everything you walk in there now and everything's tied down, everything's strapped from top to bottom. Um, so it does, sometimes you ask a question where you do see some tight, you know, some other items that aren't tied down, everything else is tied down. So, but, but you've got to look back, um, and ask the question about what did the engineer sign off on? What was the detail at the time that that was built? Let's have a look at it. So that, that's what applies. But going back to what you mentioned at the beginning, um, these guys who undertake the trades, they're pretty highly qualified. They've got to be, but the ones that sort of fall a little bit behind or, or tend to use older methods or practices just simply aren't looking at updates and bulletins or following the industry as it moves forward. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So on the subject of tie-down straps, Jason Cotton, here we go, Peter. <laughs> Put me on the spot. These are Jason's drinking on the job. Look at this. Pure vodka. <laughs> uh, well, it's nice of you to bring, not bring me in some. Well, no, in, in all seriousness, Jason, tie down straps. They are a problem with, it seems, every second transaction that has a, a structural report. It's identified. What do we say about that? Clearly, a 1960s home didn't have the same standards as a, a 2020 home. Yeah. So I guess from where we sit, 
within the standard that we function and operate under for building inspections or pre-purchase property inspections, uh, it's, not a, it's not a building certification. Although it is a minimum standard and you can veer sometimes into looking at whether something has been built to the, the, the current standard or building code or whatever it may be written under, you can maybe be able to apply some notes to that as to whether or not it is defective or could be a defect. But generally with the tie-down straps, because it, it can be very, it, it is quite confusing. And there are plenty of examples where alternative methods have been used and they're not easily identifiable because they don't, they're not the exact cookie cutter um, method of tie-down. So you, you can really sort of put yourself, hang yourself out a little bit to make some claims that things don't meet the current standard if they're not done in the way that you expect. Let's talk about what can be identified. Okay. So the Australian standard in section two of the Australian standard, it specifies what can, what, what can and can't be looked at. And uh, you know, without us going through in a, in a sort of a forensic manner, what it says is that it must be a visual inspection. Yeah. 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 A- and it, and it also says that th- it defines the, um, the, the volume of space that you, you're restricted to, of, of having to climb into. Correct. Yeah. So as an inspector, mm-hmm. if you can't see the tie down straps, like yeah. because of there's like in our case, we've put R6 insulation in our ceiling. So, you know, basically a whole ceiling space is taken up by insulation. So good luck doing your job. Certainly you wouldn't be able to see whether there was or wasn't tie down straps. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And yet we've seen reports come through from people saying there are no, well, there appears to be no tie down straps because we couldn't see them. Correct. Yeah. Well, that's that's a problem because now the the buyer thinks, oh well, there's no tie down straps, but they can't actually prove that there's no tie down straps. Mm-hmm. So I've put myself in that position. Have you? And I was extremely relieved to have gone that extra mile, but not not I wasn't happy that it caused such anxiety. But it was a it was a very good example for me demonstrating what I've just mentioned. So the stuff that we can't see that might maybe either an installation emission or even a defect is really something that would be considered a latent defect. And that's what's written in the standards as well. We're not expected to find latent defects, okay? Mm. We, we can't see in walls. We can't look into middle of wall cavities or we can't get into every nook and cranny in a roof cavity. We can't see tie-downs all over the place, particularly coming up through the wall if they're not the prescribed method with strapping over, mm. even over the top plate. I mean, that's another example. There. The method for tie-downs for, from the wall straps is to be nailed into the top plate uh, on the on the wall it's only been in the last sort of uh, seven or eight years that that the methods have all the practices have been encouraged to now pull the tie the strap up and and tie it around a batten or around the the rafter the end of the rafter and this you know i've queried this a brand new build i I saw it took a photo of it and queried to the builder what, what the method that you've used is meets the the bca or the built the, the building code but is it um the current practice for what you're meant to meet can you please send through the the details that the engineers have signed off on they just sent it straight through and it was a standard detail for nailing into the top plate and that was it so you can't argue with that mm. followed the engineer's detail 
and that's exactly what they've done and they've tied it down. And, not, and it's not the method that w- or the practice that anyone else is encouraging, but they've done it to the standard. So um, latent defects, yeah. We, we, and that normally, you could be looking at the rafters, peering here and peering there and looking at the battens and where's the tie-down strap. We see it around, you know, wrapped around these every, in every other property. But, but it could be right over the edge behind where the cornice is on the top plate underneath the insulation and it's been nailed in. Mm-hmm. So it's, and if it's a color bond roof, which invariably, this is the reason why we're talking about it because of the metal sheet roofs with tie down straps and the uplift and so forth. The only way you're going to find this out is if you get on a ladder with a, with a rattle gun or with a drill, battery drill with a tech screw head and start ripping the end of the sheets off. And that, and I've been down that path. But that's not your, that's not in accordance with the, no, it's the not. Australian standard. It, it, you, you can only s- inspect what you can see. Yeah. The funny thing, the situation that I'm talking about though, was it was a renovation and then they pulled off some original cladding, which wasn't never, it was never tied down anyway prior because it was a, about a 1970s home. And then the fellow had spent a mozza, you know, he brought a property up from about a $500,000 property to about 900,000. He'd spent a lot of money. It was a really nice uh, renovation. But when I was in the roof cavity, I couldn't see a single tie down anywhere. And I queried it. You know, the property was still, um, it was still under the you know, home indemnity insurance because it, it was a new build, essentially, you know, mm. renovation, new build. And he sent an email out to the roof sheet company who, who installed it. And um, they sent back, because he, he had the details. He put the building details or the engineering details on the table and it showed tie-down straps. But for the life of me, I couldn't see them. And some areas of the ceiling he hadn't fully insulated. So I could see the, all the top plates. And um, he sent a message off to the company that emailed them. And they literally just emailed him back and said, it's tied down. We installed tie downs. No photographs, no nothing, nothing right. And so I had to go back to the property on, it was a Christmas Eve. And there was very, there was a half dozen people invested in this being decided whether or not there were tie downs and and it was going to go forward as a sale. And uh, I spaced out above walls, solid walls, you know, between window openings, about a two and a half meter section of roof sheet. And I selected four of those around the property randomly. So I had a good variation of what I'm looking at. And I unscrewed the sheets across and I lifted them up and I saw a 45 degree galvanized iron bracket with with a rod a threaded rod bolted onto the directly onto the end of the rafter over the wall cavity. And I went, Whoa, thank God for that. That's good. <laughs> That's yes. a good sign. Yes. And I went, I did, I did all four and I found the same on all four. So you know what could have, what, and the thing is that, that they installed that, um, not to the stand, not to the details that were provided by the engineers in the drawings. So what they needed or should have done was, was uh, detailed, what their alternative method was and provided some photographs of what they'd done. It would have been so simple, mm. but they just went, nah, we've done it. No yeah. problem. Well, they were right. They did it. <laughs> yeah. You told me, yeah. um, some time ago when we were talking about another inspection, um, about, um, that tie down straps are not connected to the outer skin of the wall. Is that right? So they're inlaid into the, they're inlaid into the, uh, the mortar joints. 
of the outer skin or the inner skin? Um, in uh, the inner skin. Yeah, because that's the that's the load bearing wall. Yeah. Yeah. So in a in a double brick home, yeah. uh, the outer outer leaf mm. is largely it's a protective shield, largely decorative. So it's or you, protective. You call yeah. you'd call it cladding. Yes. So to to protect the inner wall, which is a load bearing wall from the elements and deterioration, which then begs the question. If you saw a massive crack in the outer wall of mm-hmm. a home, does that necessarily mean that it's uh, it has a structural defect? No, typically not. I mean, it's, it, do, it doesn't mean it's a structural defect at all until you investigate what's, what's going on. So it's not a load-bearing wall. So it's a, it's a mass wall. You've got a lot of light. You've got, you know, obviously you don't its own weight. Fall down on your head. Yeah, but it's not taking um, it's not taking the load off the rafters, which is taking the, the load from the roof framing and the load that's carried across the tiling or whatever it may be. Mm, mm. So, and it's it it is a separate component uh, to the internal wall. It's tied in. The wall ties between the two, and it sits on the footing directly on the footing. Um, so it, it's often just indicative of general movement, some, you know, flexing or a bit of, uh, stresses here or stresses there, normal movement. Mm. So what are the other non-structural defects that you, you'd traditionally put in a. Non-structural is a defect note as a defect. Yeah. I mentioned earlier installation omissions. So we do, you know, if I come across a property. With, uh, and I see that there's, uh, you know, 1990s um, build, you know, High Wickham or somewhere like that, Colourbond, pretty popular out there during the 90s. A lot of Colourbond roof properties and, you know, Jarrah timber framed um, roof framing. Uh, you'll find almost none of the timbers, uh, the, the struts to the underpurlins there are birdmouth. So birdmouth, for those that don't know, is where it's notched almost at a 45 degree angle. So where the underpurlin is turned, it, the pitch of the roof, it slots in and, and, it, and it holds it into like a grip. Mm-hmm. And so the, in the standards where those are installed with the timber's bird mouth, you know, strapping's not required because you're nailing from either sides and it's gripping, essentially gripping in the timber. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's really common to see the, the, uh, the timbers out there just butted up flush. But you, you know, the industry, again, as I was mentioning earlier, that there, the industry itself drives change. And also it does drive um, being a bit more cautious with what we see. So when we do see um, some of those timbers from, which predates some of the standards with respect to tie-down straps, we will still note those um, in the report as observations and as a preventative measure to consider installing tie-down straps. But it's difficult, like you're saying, the moment we sort of become an authority on tie-down straps, well, why do we stop there in, in an older building which doesn't meet current code? You know, what what else are we going to enforce people to fix on their homes from, that are built in 1950s that don't meet the code of today? Incredibly slippery slope you'd be on. It's a very slippery slope. Mm. And, and people would, you know, having to have 30 grand in their back pocket when they're selling a property to fix all these things. Every Everyone. I mean, there's, you wouldn't find a property built prior to 2000 they wouldn't have half a dozen items that wouldn't meet the current code. Mm. And so where do you stop? And that, that's the other point of it as well, when you can bring in t- the latent defects. You know, often things aren't found until they fail. Uh, an example would be, uh, again, the types of 
panels used in balustrading, perhaps glass panels on, on um, balustrading and rails on balconies. Bit of an example come up about that recently where a child had pushed a glass panel out of a property's balustrade onto the ground. That was built around 2000. Uh, and then when a glazier came to, re- come to replace the, the, the glass then inspected it and said, none of this meets the current code, so I'm not going to put another glass panel in. You have to look at remodelling and reinstalling a whole new balustrade for this balcony. Wow. And pointed out a few things about uh, this being undersized and that being undersized. But, but at the time, you know, there was an engineer that signed off on the construction of that balustrade and said everything was safe mm. at that time. Mm. And then they would have built it, but not with a particular code that would have had a, as a minimum standard thickness of glass or thickness of, of railings and casing the glass and various things like that. Mm. So, yeah, we, you know, that's defects that we would try and point out where we can see them if they're not latent. In your job, you, um, the, I note in the standard that it doesn't fall on you to give assessments on how much something is going to cost to fix. That's correct, it's, yeah. That's not your job. Your job is just to report what the de- the defects and the fix is up to the client to go and, and work out how much that is. In practice, I imagine you get sucked into that reasonably regularly. Look, occasionally, but it's never, we, we just never included in the report, never. Yeah. You know, because it becomes. Do, do, do clients call you up and, or, or collar you at the, at the inspection and say, Jason, how much do you think this will cost to fix? Uh, not at the inspection, often afterwards, after, and often after they've taken possession of the property. Mm-hmm. Uh, they'll firstly ask, who can we get to fix this? And then what will we expect to pay? Mm. Uh, and, you know, I've got a, a number of pretty decent tradesmen uh, and I never just flag I never just put out the names of tradesmen that I know are going to be cheap mm. um, unless they're really good mm. and I know that they're going to be great at what they do. But yeah, th- that's, it's always a really difficult or slippery slope to go down trying to give people estimates of how things uh, you know, are going to pan out for cost. Mm. Uh, it's just, it's really tricky. You try not to get involved in it. One of the um, arguments I have with um, real estate agents and we see this coming through with uh, with funky clauses that are added to the REWA structural uh, inspection report is they try to define who can and can't perform a structural inspection, a, a pre-purchase uh, structural inspection. Now, my understanding of reading this, um, reading this uh, standard is that the person has to be suitably qualified. Competent. Competent, yes. Competent, suitably qualified. That's right. Yeah. Yep. So, um, th- and from what I understand, that could be such as yourself, a building surveyor or a builder. Is there anyone else? Well, you could probably incorporate an engineer. An engineer? Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. To a degree, maybe uh, look at an architect as well, having some concepts of loads and load bearing and stuff like that and understanding mm-hmm. construction mm. methods. Mm. Yeah. Um, look, there, there are various trades that, that can easily um, move through to this field of doing building inspections. And, and then there are others, people who are just not 
who may be in those trades that just aren't suitable to do building inspections. Is it the case that some companies that are doing building ins- inspection use their, let's say, a builder's registration as an umbrella and send out unregistered people to do the report and then they just check the report? Um, not that I've really heard of. I haven't really seen that. And, and that that's... I, I just suspect that's happening, but I don't, mm. I, I don't know for sure. No, I, I've not heard of that happening. Mm-hmm. You, you know, you, a builder can't, someone can't use someone else's builder's registration number. Mm. Uh, someone can't use my, I couldn't say to someone, just use my number as a building surveyor, put that on there because I would lose my registration. Mm. You know, it's a practice that you just, it's so risky. Yes. You wouldn't, you wouldn't, it's not worth doing. Mm. Um, you could be a, a company which is, that has engineers, registered builders. I'm, I'm hearing you, Jason. I'm hearing you. <laughs> I, I just think that there's there might be people out there doing it. I don't. I don't believe so, Pete. Mm. I, I'm not uh, like right across, and I don't know a lot of other inspectors. Believe it or not, a dozen years in the job, I, I really only know of about five building inspectors, and it's because I've worked with them in the past, and mm. I know who they are. Mm-hmm. And but the others, with all the other big name companies, don't know any of them. Mm. Haven't bumped into them in a pub. Haven't had a conference with them. We don't get together and mill around and, you know, work out how we're going to really fix up these agents with, with, <laughs> with structural defects that, that aren't really structural defects. That doesn't happen. Wow. <laughs> Jason, um, there's, there's one solution I, I'm going, that I'm proposing to the industry to, to sort out this whole mess that is the restructural inspection annexure. And then the report, and that is a simple due diligence period, like a five or a 10 day due diligence period where the client can get whatever reports they want, structural report, building, um, uh, you know, an electrical report, plumbing, go to the council, search the council records, do it all. Sure. Yeah. And then at the end of the five or 10 days, they just decide do we want to buy this property based on all the research we've done? Do we want to buy this property or not? Yeah, absolutely. And like it is elegantly simple, but I'm going. I know that I'm going to get agents sending me Molotov cocktails as a result of saying this. And uh, I've I've spoken about this in in various uh, in uh, forums. Uh, and yeah, it's not a popular opinion, but I, I think it is a- actually something the industry would uh would benefit from look it, it it could be suggested mm. but it's really prohibitive really like so as a building inspector we would go out and we're all indemnified right we've got indemnity insurance we yep. you know i can say that that's a settlement crack don't be concerned like it may open up and close up again over through winter to summer and that's just the natural movement in the ground which affects it comes and goes uh and I, i'll say that no problem and walk away and 12 years later still haven't had a phone call about that crack in the wall being a structural defect. Mm. No, not going to get it. And I'm pretty comfortable with that. And then there are other inspectors who will flag all sorts of minor cracks to be inspected by a structural engineer. Mm. That's, that's the can of worms you don't want to open. And there are a couple of companies out there that just do this verbatim. We see it. And it's, that's, that's what's pretty horrible about this industry at times with the, in the building inspection, um, mm. circle, you, you, I get, so I get sent photos all the time of screenshots of re- building reports and say, is this a structural defect? Yeah. I know. And we, I, we've sent it, them to you. Cause we've got, you know, they're asking for an engineer to look at it mm. and I would look at it and I say, well, we've got all, we're all insured. Mm. 
it's a, it's a settlement crack, mm. you know, or that's not even part of a building structure. And, and the, the, the problem is that the, the client has, that they're, they're using the, the restructural inspection annexure and it's kind of like turns into a whole negotiation. Like the, the report turns into a negotiation where it was, if it was just a straight out due diligence period at the end of which you decided yes or no, I'm buying this property or I'm not, there's no negotiation. It's just a yes or no answer. The, the other thing too, with you, you'll mention that, you know, you can bring in a raft of highly trained professionals in their vocation, electricians, plumbers, engineers. I mean, who else you might want to bring in a company that's a, a glazing company to give their yeah, give a report on the windows. But once you've done your building inspection at, at your nominal price, that is your market, you shop around, you find someone in the market as a building inspector that you're comfortable with. It's a good price. You, you've got references and you've got, you know, read their Googles, mm. Google reviews. You go and get that inspection. Mm. And on the back of that, then, then that's your starting point. That, it, that's a starting point. But then on the back of that, you've got minimum $300 to get an electrician out to look at the electrical board and see if it's all earth correctly and everything else is done properly, uh, minimum. And, and interestingly, I've had a lot of people say to me, oh yeah, you know, we've got a electrical safety certificate. And now any of the sparkies out there who might get really upset with me when I let this cat out of the bag, but the RCD signing off on RCDs is this click works, click works, power lighting, power lighting, two RCDs done. So there are, most people have this um, impression that on the back of an electrical safety certificate, uh, the Sparkies walked through and tested every PowerPoint. Electrical safety certificate, 150 bucks, there or thereabouts, you know, I'm just pulling a figure. Mm. Um, proper full electrical inspection with an electrical electrician contractor, 300 plus dollars. Yeah, yeah. And they write a full four or five page report and I promote that through many inspections. With, with Sparkies at the moment, that will get you the first 15 minutes. That's right. But then you, again, um, an engineer to come out and have a look at that hairline crack in the wall, thousand bucks. Yeah. It really depends on the type of property you're buying and, and, the, and the scope of the property you're buying. I, I was talking to a prospective client this morning who was looking at buying a $330,000 property in Medina. Um, they're probably not going to get all those inspection reports. No, that's right. Yeah. Let's face it. This has been the uh, WA Property Q&A. Been great. And uh, we'll see you all next week. And that wraps up another episode of the WA Property Q&A. We hope you found our discussion valuable and gained some valuable insights into the world of property buying in Western Australia. Remember, while we strive to provide useful information, it's crucial to consult with the appropriate professionals before making any investment decisions. Don't forget to tune in next week for another exciting episode where we continue to unravel the mysteries of the WA property market. If you have any questions or topic suggestions, feel free to reach out to us. Until then, happy property hunting and remember to seek the right advice for your personal circumstances. Thank you for listening.